introducing our speaker, Dr. Jia Chen, to discuss Hong Kong's real return, the decimation of one country, two systems. Thank you. All right, thank you so much, uh, Brandon, for this uh, nice introduction. And I didn't know before that we actually shared the same time uh, at the ANU, it's nice to know. And good evening, everybody. I'd like to say back in the early 90s, when I traveled to Hong Kong for the first time, not from China, but from uh, Australia as the ANU PhD candidate to do my field work. And it was kind of naive for me to actually see the nascent, you know, democratization there, you know, to be really impressed by it. I, I was thinking that Hong Kong and, a, and a Taiwan, you know, may actually spearhead the political liberalization of the entire Chinese nation. Now, fast forward. So what's happening now is that, you know, whatever resembled democracy in Hong Kong uh, has been crushed. And Taiwan has come under intense threat. Right? Now, today I'll tell the story of Hong Kong's so-called real return. Um, the to look at the you know, what I see as the uh, decimation of one country, two systems. Uh, I will first talk a little bit about history, that is to know the real return of as some mainland Chinese uh, literature uh, would I like to say, you know, uh, real handover. Uh, to understand that, I'll start with a bit of a history regarding the initial return or the first handover uh, with China's commitment to one country, two systems. And I, then I'll look at how during the first 20 or 22 or so years that was practiced or implemented in Hong Kong. That is until the end of 2019. I see you know, what's happening you know, since the end of 2019 or since 2020 basically opens a brand new page for Hong Kong for the much worse, I'm, I'm afraid. Okay? And so eventually I'll, I'll look at what has happened you know, uh, over the past two years with uh, Xi Jinping in Beijing, uh, I think, you know, it, it may be useful to, for you to see, you know, the analytical side of this, you know, behind all these, you know, current affairs and the images of police brutality and all that. What's really behind it? What triggered it? And where is this leading to? Okay. Now, I don't want to start with opium war and all that, but simply to say, you know, colonization of Hong Kong started with the Qing Dynasty's defeat by the British uh, in so-called opium war in 1840. Now, how to describe colonial Hong Kong? There was a bit of a political or pro-democracy momentum in the last five to seven years in colonial Hong Kong in the lead up to the handover. However, what I want to give here is, is, is a general picture, okay, without particularly looking into what happened in, in the dying years of British colonialism. Now, this is my way to depict colonial Hong Kong. 
it, it was defined by laissez-faire capitalism. Hong Kong was a thriving entry port and international financial hub. No one would dispute that. Right? Hong Kong, again, according to many specialists of political development, colonial Hong Kong was not democratic, particularly in the sense that colonial governor, of course, you know, was never uh, directly elected. The last one, Chris Patton, was appointed by John Major, so was his, all his predecessors by British Prime Minister. It was not democratic, however, and I agree with most of the observers, colonial Hong Kong was free, was a free society. Okay? Uh, it had a robust civil society, and it enjoyed rule of law with British common law. And it had uh, allegedly very efficient uh, civil service, which was always seen as one of the cleanest in Asia. Okay. Now came the handover negotiations uh, in 18, sorry, in 1984 to discuss a handover from British to, uh, to uh, uh, China in 1997. Now this year, 1997, was not just made up. Right? It comes from this background. When British colonized Hong Kong by Nanjing Treaty, which the British was Gumbo's fourth Qing Dynasty to sign in 1842, actually Qing Dynasty only ceded the Hong Kong island to Britain, but was meant to be permanent possession for the British, okay? No 99 year lease, permanent, all right? Then in 1862, after another, you know, bad defeat by the British, by some Anglo-British forces, the Qing Dynasty again was forced to sign a new treaty. This time it ceded the peninsular part of the Greater Hong Kong, that is Kowloon, to the British. But again, permanently. Okay? Now, then what about 99 year lease? Okay? The thing is, with these two pieces of real estate, the British found it hard to really sustain in a viable economic you know, life there. Right? So, in 1898, again, they forced the Qing Dynasty to sign a new treaty. This time, to lease a much bigger piece of land called a New Territory to the British authorities okay, for 99 years. Right. So the return of Hong Kong, the issue came up in the early 80s with people like Margaret Thatcher and Deng Xiaoping. It initially was just for the end of this particular lease, not for the other two bits of land. You know, Hong Kong Island and Kowloon. But anyway, fast forward. Both sides eventually agreed the whole lot, the great Hong Kong with all these three pieces of real estate should be returned to the People's Republic of China in 1997 and a joint declaration was signed in 1984. Okay, Hong Kong was to be returned to to the central government, to the motherland government as a special administrative region. 
right? Then quickly both sides uh, worked together and eventually a mini constitution, basic law, was adopted by the National People's Congress in Beijing in the middle of 1990. Okay. Now, that was what's happening, was rushed through, really leading to the handover. Uh, the key point, in a nutshell, you know, at the end of the day, was China's solemn pledge you know, to honor one country, two systems. That, okay, now, what does that mean exactly? Okay. First of all, the central government was to respect the status quo of Hong Kong's capitalist society and economic system after the handover. Okay, that's the first part of two systems. That is, you after the handover, even after the handover, Hong Kong is allowed to keep the capitalist status quo, whatever it, it may be, you know? Um, and that, that, will make, that will keep Hong Kong's, you know, separate identity from the People's Republic of China, the mainland China, which is and remains a communist one-party state, okay? Then Beijing also promised, and, and by the way, all this is are literally written into basic law and a joint declaration. Okay? Hong Kong will be given a high level of autonomy. Deng Xiaoping repeatedly said to Margaret Thatcher, Hong Kong for Hong Kongers to govern. Free, free of Beijing's interference beyond foreign policy and a national defense. Fair enough. Right? In fact, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the, uh, the handover ceremony on July the 1st, 1997, China only sh had a token show of sovereignty of Hong Kong that in the middle of the night, I think a few thousands of People's Liberation Army troops just quietly moved across the border and, and quietly got into the barracks left behind by the British military. That's it. Okay. Without no, with no disturbance to the capitalist status quo or reality in Hong Kong. Okay. And one country, two systems. The formula was to last for 50 years from 1997. So just bear in mind the three main key points. Okay. By the way, I, I read Joint Declaration of Basic Law a few times. This is how what I summarized at the most important points. Okay. Now, why did Deng Xiaoping, the then paramount leader, agree to such a liberal deal? Well, liberal in the sense that Deng, after all, was a veteran, you know, communist party leader. You know, coming from the long March generation. Why was this octogenarian so open-minded? Because one country, two systems meant that he, despite his political ideological beliefs, would have to respect the capitalist system, a way of life in Hong Kong for 50 years. And that is what he meant 
you know, one country, two systems, right? So you have capitalists running amok in Hong Kong. We have Communist Party, you know, ruling mainland China. Happy coexistence, right? We respect status quo in Hong Kong. Okay, the answer is, is that at the time, you know, China's own post-war reform badly needs the Hong Kong's capital. You know, it was really from uh, after, mostly after China joined World Trade Organization in the year 2001, the major Western multinational co companies pulled into Hong Kong, uh, sorry, pulled into China. But prior to that, the so-called international capital investing in China, you know, operating those sweatshops, exploiting cheap laborers, whatever, the mainly ethnic Chinese capital from Hong Kong. And these were the useful middlemen to introduce Western-style management technology into mainland China, particularly into special economic zones in Guangdong province. And then, you know, once they opened up, you know, China's market and 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 factories, then the Hong Kong headquarters of Western companies followed suit. So. Deng saw Hong Kong as economically very useful, but equally important was that he saw Hong Kong as politically safe, <laughs> or at least uneventful. Okay, I have, I have just described to you what sort of colonial Hong Kong, you know, or Deng sort of saw and understood. That is largely apolitical, okay? No political party, no elections, nothing. I mean, it was just a thriving capitalist economy with a civil society, rule of law, super efficient British-style civil service, and churning out a lot of capital for China. Now, that sort of capitalist system is what Deng really loved. So there was little for him to worry when he said, I will definitely keep your capitalist status quo, even though it is handed over to us. Okay, easy to handle. All right. In fact, Deng said, you know, I want, said I want more than 10 Hong Kongs on the mainland. By the way, in those years, he was also saying to Lee Kuan Yew, I want more than 10 Singapore's on the mainland. <laughs> so now you understand what sort of capitalist economy Deng Xiaoping really fell in love with. That is rich, useful, but, you know, without much democracy, right? Okay, and uh, um, so, and when Deng was asked by Hong Kong correspondents, you know, what sort of life will we continue to have? after you guys take over in 1997. Again, in the spirit of one country, two systems, respecting your capitalist way of life, keep your status quo, don't reply famously. Yeah. Keep your horse racing. So continue your horse racing. Keep your ballroom dancing. By the way, this is how Deng Xiaoping saw Hong Kong brand of capitalism. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly, that was not very far from the truth. Hong Kong was an apolitical society during his time anyway, right? Uh, it is also interesting 
that Deng Xiaoping himself visited Hong Kong three times before the communist victory in 1949. So that probably also explained, probably, probably his memory of Hong Kong capitalism went back to 1930s, I don't know. <laughs> okay, now the thing is, now this is getting closer to what I really want to uh, focus on, uh, transitioning to 1997 became complicated, rather unexpectedly. You know what happened. So after this joint declaration, pomp and ceremony, basic law, whatever, um, Deng Xiaoping couldn't foresee the scale and, and the consequence of political awakening of the Hong Kong people by the 1989 Beijing massacre, which Deng himself perpetrated, by the way. <laughs> Sending tanks, you know, People's Liberation Army using guns to kill students, academics. Anyway, I think you all know that. Right? And the collapse of uh, global communism. So all this sort of alerted, sort of made more and more people in Hong Kong to rethink what sort of motherland regime is coming to take over. Prior to that, you know, Hong Kong people were a bit just like those starry-eyed Western commentators that, you know, Deng Xiaoping was on his way to demoification, embrace capitalism. You know how many times Deng became a, you know, cover boy in, in times? You know, because he was a chain smoker. One image showing him using some cigarette, burning the image of Karl Marx. <laughs> okay. And people woke up because of this massacre and the killing, and a massive nationwide crackdown on, on the students after the massacre, right? And this political awakening worried Beijing. Again, I want to remind you, when Deng Xiaoping was so confident that he can keep the status quo forever, 50 years, right, after handover, he was really thinking about that a political, safe, but rich, efficient Hong Kong, not politicized Hong Kong, right? Um, and, and Beijing's worry was exacerbated by the rushed democratic reform of Chris Patton. That's unfortunate for Beijing. Right? You know, Chris Patton, the last governor, serving 92 to 97. Okay? I witnessed the result of you know, the enthusiasm uh, that, that, that he ignited in Hong Kong civil society thanks to his democratic reform. Um, and why Chris Patton? Okay. You know, unlike all his predecessors, who were usually just you know, retiring bureaucrats or the so-called sinologists, sinologists who knew best how not to upset Beijing, right? Uh, and they served five years eating dim sum, going back to London, collecting knighthood. Okay. Um, Chris Patton was a politician. Why he came to Hong Kong? He was actually the chairman of Tory party. Interestingly, Tory party won the 1991 elections. John Major still remained as prime minister, but Chris Patton lost his own seat. So he was awarded with that plum job 
go to the Far East, go to the Far East, you know, enjoy Hong Kong five years. But the thing is, he was still youngish. He was very ambitious. He was kind of visionary. He wanted to leave some legacy in the history of Far East in Hong Kong. And plus, plus that was post Tiananmen, post Soviet days. The whole world was talking about was talking about you know democracy, human rights. Okay, don't forget this overall global context. So all of a sudden, he started, you know, uh, to uh, to to democratize the the hitherto rather low key, muted, apolitical Hong Kong society. All right, and uh, but of course, even before he came, it was already a couple of years political awakening up, of course, uh, because of Tiananmen Square and the collapse of Soviet Union. But Chris Patton was responsible for reforming two institutions. First of all, Legislative Council, which in most of colonial days, for more than 150 years, British colonialism really didn't give much democracy to Hong Kong people. Right? So Legislative Council used to be a purely consultative body. He opened it up, subjecting all the seats you know, previously there was no seat subject to direct elections. He opened up all the seats subject to direct elections in 1994. That was the first time Hong Kong people were galvanized for a democratic elections, legislative council, 60 seats altogether. Then he opened up most of the seats in the lower level, I mean, altogether, 18 district councils for direct elections. Again, for the first time, people in Hong Kong tasted democracy of liberal kind. Okay? And China absolutely hated him, hated him, calling him all sorts of names, which I can't really repeat, but it was awful. right? But basically, the point of China is that for more than, more than 50, 150 years, you know, colonialists exploited people, whatever, now they suddenly feel passionate about democracy <laughs> at a time when they're supposed to pack up. Okay. Well, that's actually beside my point. Whatever going to happen. But the thing is, these developments, you know, prior to Chris Patton, and then accelerated by Chris Patton, basically they created a dilemma to Beijing. That is, you have just promised to honor the status quo of Hong Kong in all sense of the word. But the status quo of Hong Kong is no longer just a capitalist economy. It's no longer just ballroom dancing, and horse racing, gambling, prostitution, right? Okay. And a, patri and a patriotic triad. But now it is starting to look like moving towards liberal democracy. Would you like to respect that status quo? Okay. So the challenge for China, I mean, that was already after Deng's time, okay? Deng didn't live long enough to see the handover. For Beijing, the challenge was how to honor one country, two systems by respecting the new politicized status quo. Okay. 
Now, so let me show you how Beijing balanced it out. Again, until late 2019, I like to repeat, you know, things happening from then, you know, basically makes everything deteriorate. Okay. Um, so from handover to late 2019, the way one country, two systems was practiced showed it was lopsided. Okay. It was hard for the central government to balance capitalist economy, horse racing, if you like, and then people's rising urges for democracy. They had it, well, in part, right, in the dying years of, of colonialism. And don't forget, I'm also talking about lots of young generations in Hong Kong. Okay? Um, now, so what happened was that while capitalist economic system largely continued, and Beijing made good use of it, that is true. During the first 21, 22 years, Hong Kong every year was rated by agencies like The Economist as sort of most free or most open economic system on earth or something. Um, on the other hand, democratic rights were restrained and the rule of law incrementally eroded, particularly since Xi Jinping, or should I say particularly since his second term. Specifically, popular urges for universal suffrage for legislative council seats and, and, and the chief executive position were persistently just ignored. Okay? And some traditional freedoms from the colonial era were also eroded. For instance, media people developed more and more you know, self-censorship. And occasionally, mainland Chinese law enforcement agencies in, engaged in cross-border abduction of regime critics. And that was in violation of Hong Kong's judicial autonomy, you know, because Whatever fugitives there are in Hong Kong, whatever political suspects you see in Hong Kong, is subject to Hong Kong's, you know, uh, court to deal with. Now, chief executive was chosen by a special election committee of 1,200 eminent locals, overwhelmingly handpicked by Beijing, by the way. And the committee was only answerable to Beijing. Legislative council had 70 seats, and half were for direct elections. The, the other half were the so-called functional constituencies, constituencies, which is really euphemism to refer to you know, you know, rich business groups, uh, lobbyists, uh, which Beijing could easily you know, manipulate. Legislative council had no real legislative power. Major bills must be approved by chief executive before submission. And it was occasional DQ of members elect. And I use DQ because from then to now, uh, central government uh, has disqualified so many troublemaking lawmakers and members electing legislative council that in Hong Kong's language, you know, they simply say someone is DQ, you know, disqualified. Okay, usually referring to 
either serving lawmakers or members of legislative council elect. Okay? And direct elections remained just limited to the 18 local district councils. But that was already done in the, in the Chris Patton's time. Okay. So altogether, Hong Kong Democrats would say at the time it was one country, 1.5 systems. I have to say, you know, in hindsight, that was a golden era of one country, two systems, okay? Because what's happening after that is far worse, okay? Now, people's fr frustration grew. The so-called umbrella revolution, also called, you know, Occupy Central, is a huge democracy rally in Hong Kong in, in, the, in the last three months in 2014, triggered by Beijing's moves to dishonor the promise of universal suffrage. People called for universal suffrage, and China denied it. I know there is, a, there is sort of a technical disagreement here. When I looked at the basic law, it definitely says universal suffrage for legislative council and a chief executive position will be implemented, but basic law never says when. <laughs> but the thing is, coming from China, we lived, lived in Beijing for 10 years, and I can tell you, all these principles of elections, multiple political party system, freedom, freedom of everything, that is even in the Constitution of People's Republic of China. Why do you have to take it seriously? The fact that it was written into basic law, people thought they can take it seriously, right? It, it didn't have a time frame, okay? Uh, but people tried to hold China accountable, accountable for that promise, okay? Because what became clear was that they ultimately, they wanted to establish Hong Kong, you know, as a market capitalist economy, together with a liberal democratic political system. That, from people's point of view, was the way to honor one country, two systems. Otherwise, it would be just one country, 1.5 systems. Right? Um, but then, you know, by 2014, it became very clear to everybody that Beijing was not going to do it. The anti-extradition protest, which was shown like on a daily basis, the worldwide, uh, originally was triggered just by one issue. Carrie Lang, the chief executive, proposed an extradition bill in legislative council. If adopted, it would enable the authorities to send fugitives or any suspects to mainland Chinese court or law enforcement. Okay. Um, and by that point of time, there was already very little trust in Hong Kong about integrity of mainland Chinese uh, judicial system. Um, so people basically protested, thinking that that would open the gate of flood to erode judicial independence. Okay, uh, it's better just to just to let you know mainland authorities just 
get involved in cross-border you know, secretive abduction of fugitives rather than bothering Hong Kong's judicial independence. Okay? Um, the thing is, the frustration soon grew to a broad call for democratization. Again, two things. Universal suffrage for all the seats in legislative council and universal suffrage for the chief executive position. Okay. Um, and of course, what, what happened later was like, basically like history, you know, a, a, a brutal crackdown. I, at one stage, I was wondering whether it would be another sort of Tiananmen kind of, you know, repression. Okay. Um, anyway, it seems to me, right, while the protest, by the way, you know, this, these protests, which went on for six months, and only stopped because of uh, the pandemic. Okay, it went on for six months. Um, it was so usual to see like one, two, three million. Yes, at one stage, three million Hong Kongers took to the streets. By the way, Hong Kong has just over seven million people. Like if three million people go to the streets. That is something, right? Uh, I would say any authoritarian leader would probably get a bit conciliatory to that, but not with Xi Jinping, unfortunately, right? It seems to me Beijing has also worked out what I can call final solution, okay? So we have seen systematic crackdown since 2020 towards so-called real return. Now, I'll be brief with those details. First of all, the infamous national security law, in, you know, hastily crafted by National People's Congress right? and imposed in June 2020. Most prominently in cruel charges like incitement to subversion and collusion with foreign forces. Coming from China myself, I can tell you these are exactly the convenient legal tools used by authorities in China to nail any dissenting journalist, academic, rights lawyers, NGO activists, anyone. Right? Uh, it's always about incitement to subversion or subversion of state authority, something like that. Right? If you publish uh, an article like, like Liu Xiaobo did, uh, in online, in online you know, uh, radio free Asia, then you'll be, you'll be accused of collusion with foreign forces. Okay. Now, so they are, they are now using it in Hong Kong. And the application of NSL is extraterritorial. That's worrisome. And I spotted this article just uh, yesterday from Sydney Morning Herald. Okay. Now, the last legislative council elections was originally scheduled to be, you know, in uh, uh, September 2020, but was conveniently postponed until the end of this year in the name of a pandemic. I, I said it was dubious because Hong Kong wasn't hard, hard hit by, 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 by COVID-19. You know what? Last year elections were held in Singapore, South Korea, I think in Japan as well. Huh? And um, the true reason was that the comparatively still free elections of district council in November 2019. 
saw landslide victory for pan-democrats and anti-extradition protesters. That, you know, worry central government. That was probably the real reason they said, okay, let's postpone the elections for legislative council, which after all, you know, although it was a rubber stamp, but it was more important than the, than the district council. Right? And then dis dissenting legal members were ousted, disqualified en masse. In November 2020 alone, as many as 17, at the time they got like around 25 members serving in the Legislative Council, showing the victory of the, the, the elections of 2016. Um, but as many as 17 were ousted or disqualified in one way or the other. A mass arrest of activists and media figures. It kind of upsets me to see the 73-year-old media guy, Jamie, Jamie Lai, being placed in shackles. Why do they have to do it? <laughs> uh, the answer is, they do it in China itself. So it's more and more like mainland China now, okay? The, the, the idea is, you know, to kill the chicken to warn the monkeys. You know, they show the image, in, in government, newspaper, online, whatever, you know, send warning signal to anyone in, in the media world. Okay? Uh, he was the first and most prominent casualty of uh, national security law. Okay? And uh, and, and uh, uh, of numerous civil, civil society groups, okay? including quite a few political parties. Right? Hong Kong Alliance was disbanded just earlier this year. That is sad, okay? Because they, they were the host of this annual, you know, uh, candlelight visual in Victoria Park to commemorate the June 4th event or Tiananmen Massacre. Now it's all closed, right? Now, when this was going every year until 2020, that was the only sport in the entire China where people could actually publicly, you know, commemorate the Tiananmen Square massacre. That's all gone. Right? And uh, you know, uh, uh, AI Amnesty International branch in Hong Kong was shut down. That happened just I think a couple of days ago. Right? And so uh, this is image of the visual, okay? Electoral law, as if this is not enough. Electoral law was amended a couple of months ago. Anyway, the, the key points here is that before nomination, all candidates for chief executive position and a legislate, legislative council seats must have their patriotic credentials vetted by a special committee. I don't want even I don't even want to rip, say the, the official name of that committee. It's just. You know. <laughs> I mean, in, in China's context, who is a patriot, who is not? That's up to the Chinese Congress Party to say. Right? Um, but you know, if you listen to Xi Jinping's grand speech in Tiananmen Square at the 100th birthday of the Chinese Congress Party in July this year, you see from his point of view, you know, loving the party and loving the country are the same thing. 
You can't claim to love your motherland without loving Chinese Communist Party. You can't say you are happy to dedicate yourself to the cause of the motherland without sacrificing yourself to the Chinese Communist Party. Anyway, I actually grew up with that sort of education. I know what it means when government says you ought to be patriotic before you can do this and that. I know what that means. Okay? Uh, so, Patriotic Credentials Vetting Committee. Right? And the Legislative Council enlarged to 90 seats, but only 20 were for direct elections. And no Democrats would have a chance because they couldn't pass the vetting of patriotic credentials. Right? And uh, the Chief Executive Election Committee expanded to 1,500 members to further dilute the dissent from already shrinking minority of pan-democrats. That committee was formed just in September, and I could hardly see anyone from what could be broadly called you know, pan-democratic alliance, that is, including Hong Kong Democratic Party and their sympathizers. Okay? Um, then, of the 389 pan-democrats and activists elected into district councils, in 2019, as many as 326 had been DQ, disqualified by the monks, all gone. And so, Carrie Lam, <coughs> chief executive, patron number one. <laughs> so, this is Beijing's version, Beijing's narrative. Okay, they wouldn't say, I'm tightening up the, the school, right? Their version is that improve electoral system to implement patriots administering Hong Kong. I see a sea change from Deng Xiaoping's Hong Kongers to govern Hong Kong to patriots governing Hong Kong. All right. So, wide escalating campaign which is like total political liquidation. I always suspect Xi Jinping has worked out the final solution to Hong Kong. Right? Uh, <clears throat> in general, in general, from day one of handover, right, China's concern has increased with political spillover impact on the mainland from a vibrant democracy and civil society in Hong Kong. They never worried about any negative impact from Hong Kong on the nearby Guangdong province. You know, from horse racing, gambling, prostitution. It's okay, right? But vibrant democratic system, robust civil society, multi-political parties campaigning in elections, that was going to cause shockwaves across the border. In general, that has been the case. But particularly with Xi Jinping, and this guy is more totalitarian than his predecessors, except Mao. Right? At the same time, he's more confident about China's own economic progress and international standing. Crackdown in Hong Kong can be interpreted, understood from, from a broader picture of the escalating repression in China itself under his leadership. You have seen Xinjiang, Tibet, even Mongolian autonomous region uh, in China, you know. So 
all this was happening at the same time. It's, it's not just about Hong Kong. Right? It's just reflecting the fact that the regime is getting more and more totalitarian and repressive. On the other hand, Xi Jinping may have seen Hong Kong as economically less variable. That is also true. You know what? I saw the data. In 1993, just four years before the handover, can you believe it? Hong Kong's GDP was like 23% of China's GDP. So Hong Kong was huge. Now it's just 2%. Okay. So from Xi Jinping's point of view, you know, now Hong Kong, you know, instead of being super useful to China, you're more and more like hot political potato causing bad impact across border to mainland China, right? Okay, and then of course, you know, as, as a wolf warrior, both domestically and internationally, it seems he's, he's getting less and less concerned with international repercussions. Right? Anyway, also in, in, uh, at the moment, I can see Beijing is worried about Hong Kong being used by the West to cause regime change on the mainland thanks to Cold War rhetoric from Mike Pompeo and even Joe Biden. That making officials in Beijing think it's not worth it. You have an international financial center, trade center, whatever, but you've got this open window of international infiltration. That probably explains they eventually even decided to kick out Amnesty International, or in addition to other Democracy promotion agencies, uh, International Institute of Democracy, uh, whatever. Anyway, one belong to Democrats, one belong to Republicans in America. We're all out, relocated to Taiwan, by the way. Um, and also, whipping up nationalistic fervor is useful to the regime, seriously. Particularly when the economy is slowing down. Particularly when the government needs something to redirect people's attention from, you know, you know, COVID, you know, whether Wuhan was the source of problem, whatever. Okay, just look at Hong Kong. Celebrate the second handover. Summary. If Hong Kong was defined by one country, 1.5 systems prior to 2020, it has become increasingly like, increasing like one country, one system. Not exactly one, one country, one system, but I mean, increasingly like that. Okay? Now, political repression, you know, representation, popular participation is all diminished, restrained. Rule of law is more like rule by law. Okay? It's more like Lee Kuan Yew Singapore, I tell you. Or rule by fear. Right? You know, economically, Right? The status of so-called Pearl on the Orient or New York of Asia. Now it's getting harder to maintain. Ever since the Trump administration removed Hong Kong's special tariff from the trade status. Now in terms of trade, tariff, in terms of technological transfer, the United States is treating Hong Kong as no different from any other part of mainland China. Right? Anyway, Hong Kong for Patriots to Govern. This book title summarizes my, my, my thinking beautifully. Making Hong Kong China, uh, the rollback of human rights 
and, and the rule of law. So Deng Xiaoping promised 50 years no change. Now it's very halfway through, uh, President Xi is getting impatient. Um, the future is not promising. Okay, what, what's going to happen by 2047? I don't know. Right? Uh, much depends on internal changes with leadership in China. All indications are Xi Jinping is going to stay for years to come. Meanwhile, impact of, of Western sanctions is limited, and the Hong Kong exile movement is unable to cause fundamental change. Okay. What also concerns me, and many commentators actually haven't noticed this, is, the, is that with the real return, Hong Kong's distinct identity will be in jeopardy. Don't forget, right? The, the social and cultural difference between Hong Kong and mainland China, or between Hong Kong and nearby Guangdong province, is not as big as, say, difference between Tibetans and Chinese, Uyghur Muslims and the Chinese, people in Mongolian uh, autonomous region and the Chinese. Okay. Now, and so the, 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 the distinct identity can be jeopardized considering the build-up of massive infrastructures connecting Hong Kong to nearby special economic zones and the Guangdong province. Huge bridges, everything. You know, if you go to China, you ought to be impressed by all these big things. Right? Systematic reform of school textbooks to inject patriotism. As she likes to say, you know, real patriotic spirit has to be cultivated you know, from kids. Uh, and, and diminution of special status in international trade and finance. Okay? And don't forget, mass exodus of Hong Kongers and a mass influx of mainlanders. So I was telling a bunch of Hong Kong exiles a few months ago, <laughs> while you're fighting for democracy and homeland, <laughs> beware, there won't be a homeland as distinct as you imagine. Right? It's, just, it's just 7 million people. Okay. With that pessimistic note, unfortunately, I have to wrap up. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Chen. Um, I'm sure that it will elicit a lot of questions in the audience. Um, we have about 20 minutes or so for questions, 20, 15 to 20 minutes. So um, I really invite everyone to um, get it off their chest. I see one hand up. Um, Mark, Flavia. Mark had his hands first up, so I'll give it to Mark. Mark. Your former colleague is... 
You're going to put you on the... Still, still a colleague. <laughs> and we always will be. And, uh, yeah, what do you think is going to happen to the universities, Jane? Because they've got a reputation as being, well, they did have, free, decent, and uh, world standard. Are they all going to go the same way and be controlled and uh, they're going to have VCs appointed who are going to do dreadful things to the university? Sounds a bit familiar, but uh, we won't go into that. But what do you think is going to happen? There are universities in Hong Kong. Well, it's not really looking promising at all. Uh, uh, student bodies, uh, their activities are really curtailed. And in particular, you know, the, 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 there was a famous statue created by a Norwegian artist in the campus of the University of Hong Kong, again to commemorate uh, the Tiananmen Day. Okay? I, I, the name of this you know, literally in the shame or something. And last month, uh, the, the university authorities uh, announced, uh, was sent some correspondence to the artist, giving him one week to remove it. And otherwise, it would be treated as uh, some sort of uh, abandoned goods or something. Uh, probably it has already been removed. So this is actually happening. And when Kendra Light uh, in Victoria Park was banned, some students saw this do a similar service to the campuses, no, they're not allowed to. Yes, so I think it's going to impact badly on the ranking of uh, those brilliant universities in Hong Kong. <coughs> I think some of them will affect it. Thank you so much, Jai, for a brilliant presentation. Um, I know that um, you know your final remarks are not very um, optimistic. So um, I just want to know um, if, I don't know, perhaps the Hong Kong diaspora could play a role in the future of having a turnaround, because at the moment is a big crackdown and the situation looks pretty much dramatic. But do you think there is any uh, possibility of a turnaround and, and a building of a resistance, perhaps um, internationally. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> no, I, I, I think they have done. Well, well, let me put it that way. Uh, because I wrote a book about uh, you know exile political campaigns, including those exiled from Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, China, Cuba, Chile, you know, whatever across the Arkino Philippines. I did my comparative study and I found exile. At Hong Kong, no exception. They're very good at maintaining the issue on the international spotlight. Okay. And it's just like in the old days, Ramos Hotta from um, East Timor. He, he always maintained East Timor an important issue in the media. And, and so Hong Kong has been very effective in countering the disinformation campaign, uh, fake news uh, out of China. For instance, China made good use of uh, all this nonsense uh, from, uh, from Donald Trump to say that, you know, the Americans denounced those riots to heal, but wouldn't like our crackdown on rioters in Hong Kong streets now. <laughs> It's, not, it's clever propaganda, by the way. Okay, um, 
Now, so they are very good at, you know, uh, informing the broad international community of what happened in Hong Kong. Always having interviews, media, and, uh, and giving uh, uh, testimonies in the many public hearings in the uh, Executive Congressional China Committee, you know, in U.S. Congress. Um, yes. On the other hand, you know, they can't really sway things inside Hong Kong. I had connections with. Uh, I, I, I give a give a presentation to the Hong Kong exile groups uh, earlier this year. I said. Well, first of all, you are not pit just pitting yourself against a Hong Kong chief executive. Carrie Lam is nobody. Right? You are pitting yourself against mighty China. But then of the groups campaigning against mighty Chinese Communist Party, you don't have the advantage that Tibetan exile community has in terms of leadership and unity. They've got one leader, the Dalai Lama, you know, the reincarnation of some god. Right? So will be his successor. Okay, and, um, and 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 with one call, you know, that is uh, middle road solution for Tibet, whatever it is. But I say you guys divided. You can see those organizations who have signed up to so-called Hong Kong Charter in August. Those who joined uh, the Hong Kong Shadow Parliament based in, in London. Okay. Some call for genuine one country, two system. Some call straightforward Hong Kong independence. How could Hong Kong be independent? That plays into the hands of Beijing, by the way. Right. And, um, and also their ultimate dilemma is that even the liberal Deng Xiaoping only promised 50 years, no change. China, even with the authoritarian leader at the top, has no legal obligation to keep on so-called status quo beyond 2047. So? James here first, and then we'll move over to Thank you for a, for a wonderful exposition of, of all the events that led up to the present day. I want to put you in a hypothetical situation that you have the opportunity to, be, to take over from Xi Jinping in Beijing. <laughs> what would your plan of action be? Um, I'll make massive donations to you, David. <laughs> 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 if I, well, well, it depends. If, if, if I'm the communist leader, right? so that will change, supposedly. There, I think I would be more far-sighted than him, okay? Because I think he has overplayed his hand in Hong Kong. And a deep look into Hong Kong actually reveals that, you know, unlike what he may have thought, Hong Kong's value to China continues to be indispensable. Rich, thriving, big metropolises, metropolises like Shenzhen, Guangzhou, and Shanghai. Now, thanks to the, the, the economic Cold War, trade war, the, the more and more Western countries seem to have with, with China, 
in the United States is not scrutinizing and vetting the background credentials of, uh, of China, China's state-owned enterprises in New York stock market. Okay. Same thing. I, the, these Chinese companies raise the funds to serve the British Army. Okay. Under such circumstances, to keep Hong Kong as a viable international financial center, a center that actually belongs to China itself, that is really important. And she screened that out. Okay? Uh, international financial center calls for more law, efficient, transparent civil service, and judicial system. Just like all losing their image. Okay. So I would say yes, Hong Kong is important despite the percent of China. Okay. So some states kept the means, you know, not too hard on field so here. That's something I would do. Assume I'll be uh, Jim, um, it was my understanding uh, at one stage that China's aim to re uh, take back Taiwan was partly going to be on the basis that uh, the success of the um, one country, two systems in Hong Kong would encourage the Taiwanese to uh, head that way. But it doesn't seem to me that uh, that would appeal to them anymore. Oh, well, the current round of, uh, of, of uh, there was no more than just 3% of Taiwanese who would go for one country, two systems. Um, by the way, system formula was originally crafted by Deng Xiaoping for Taiwan. Taiwan Taiwanese rejected it. to keep military force. Okay. Well, whatever the diminution of one country, two systems, or whatever which used to resemble democracy in Hong Kong. Propaganda-wise, to Taiwanese government. Because, in fact, there was a bit of people in the community who used to say, one country, two system is going, being bombarded by people's liberation what what has happened to the communist party's prom promise one country two system in hong kong do you trust you know, we'll, we'll get democracy with that sort of a government so
Hi, thank you so much. Uh, my name's Ben. I recently completed my master's at Deakin University, and during uh, coursework, I wrote a paper on regulation of de-extremification um, and how it's used in Jianjing and Tibet. You spoke earlier about um, the national security law um, in 2020. Is that a law that's come out of the Legislative Council of Hong Kong and is still part of the remnant of the two systems, or is it from the mainland, and can the People's Republic use the regulation of de-extremification against democratic activists? Good question. That was made without even consulting the pro-Beijing lawmakers in Hong Kong. Carrie Lam, the most patriotic you know, person in Hong Kong, chief executive, even she said she wasn't consulted. Okay. She was informed of that during a short visit to Beijing. So really, the, the, the Supreme Rubber Stamp National People's Congress rushed it through. Okay. All right. And you see the articles. That's very similar to the criminal codes in China itself. That's really worrisome. Yeah. Um, my question is really whether you think that the Chinese government was ever really serious about one country, two systems. I mean, you can go back to 2004 and you can find Chinese government statements about patriots ruling Hong Kong and uh, how the high degree of autonomy was really about uh, at the discretion of China and very other, various other statements about political participation. So you might say that one country, two systems was always a guise. But on the other hand, if you consider the fact that um, it took 20 years before the national security law was introduced, then what was it? What, when, when did the strategy change? Uh, what was the strategy in the first place? And how, at what point did you, what was the tipping point? How did it change? Not, not simply the 2019 disturbances, because you mentioned other things in between. Thank you. I think the tipping point was really, it was a series of events, starting with Umbrella Revolution in the end of 2014. That became clear, you know, first of all, to people in Hong Kong, they're never going to have universal suffrage. And it was also clear to Beijing now that if you do not give these people, you know, such things, uh, you know, they are going to run amok, particularly the, the, the young people like Joshua Wong, people like that. Um, and then what happened, there were it's probably not as prominent as Umbrella Revolution and anti-extradition. 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, so progressively it became alarming to people like Xi Jinping. On the other hand, as I explained, if the leader in Beijing was a, was a colorless, technocratic Hu Jintao, I would say nothing would have happened. Probably milder crackdown would have been implemented instead of what we're seeing. Prior to that, I think uh, Beijing was, uh, had a clear strategy. It was just a play, play on witness because they were fully prepared for the original apolitical, uneventful, but rich use for Hong Kong. Then things started to change. 
they, got, they were caught unguarded. So you see, district council elections, they actually continued the colonial practice, right? The, the democratically elected district councils, 18 of them, they were suspended nominally on day one after the handover. But chief executive announced that I'm going to appoint a transitional body similar to district council and all the elected guys will be reappointed. It's a token change. And there are 50 elected members of district council. They got told, after serving two years with Chris Patton, they got told that you guys will lose your job on July the 1st, and they lost their jobs. Okay, so China put together a new transitional legislative council, but still, eventually Beijing realized that you've got to have some elections for those bodies. Right? And as Hong Kong people said, you know, if you hate people in Beijing always denounce colonialism, then you've got, to, you've got to do better than colonialism. Colonialism gave all these elections, you know, all these <coughs> elected institutions, just because they were elected with a, with a uh, so it was a hard balance. I, I know it was, a, it was a dilemma. What I show you is really just a sanitized picture to refer to oh, the first 20 or 22 years. It actually moved, shifted, you know, balance of power in different times. But altogether, you may say just 1.5 systems. Okay? Uh, national security law, I also have to say, thanks to that law, the central government has, has got a national security office firmly established in Hong Kong itself. So no more cover up for direct interference and mainland judges and officials are involved in all the cases in Hong Kong deemed as politically sensitive. And as some, you know, people charged in Hong Kong have been sent straight to, to mainland China. Okay. Thanks, Steve McBride. Um, when China first went into Tibet, Tibet reached out to the West for help, um, mainly the Europe and the US. There was no response, or very little. We're now seeing Hong Kong engulfed there are murmurings like all around the world, including Australia. Just curious to know, if Taiwan was invaded tomorrow, what do you think would happen? Oh well, actually, just just yesterday, Joe Biden seriously said in an online speech to East Asia Summit, and U.S. commitment to Taiwan's security, in his words. Rock solid. Okay. But the thing is, every time you just question, what the hell do you mean by rock solid? They said, uh, we have Taiwan Relations Act. But you look at articles in Taiwan Relations Act, it's vague. It's merely saying, the United States will help Taiwan to defend itself. In what way? No one knows. But many say this strategic ambiguity is a real beauty. Why? Because it keeps China guessing. You know, 
one day if you want to attack Taiwan, you never know what what United States will, will, will do. On the other hand, equally important, you know, it restrains Taiwanese from going for wholesale independence. That will provoke China. If United States categorically say to President Tsai Ing-wen, no matter what, if you are attacked, I'm going to land boots on, on, on Taiwan Island. Next day, the DPP would say, we'll change the constitution, declare the whole place as the Republic of Taiwan, and that United States will be dragged into war it doesn't want. Thank you. Hi, it's Stephen Langsford. Um, thank you for the great presentation. Uh, looking at the timeline in 2019, um, it was very convenient for the PRC that COVID-19 came along and uh, interrupted, in some respects, the umbrella movement. So um, was uh, COVID-19 a massive uh, circuit breaker, uh, intentionally? <laughs> yes. Well, China said it was intentionally released by 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 United States. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I, I I don't think so. But 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 the thing is, but the thing, if you look at the track record of uh, of Chinese government, both with Xi and, and prior to him. Uh, you know they're very good at using the international crisis and events to detain, arrest political dissidents. Okay, and that has happened to Hong Kong uh, this time. You know the United States was bought on all these chaotic elections with Donald, with two old men, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and Capitol Hill in upheaval, whatever, right? And then, particularly, okay, when 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 the attack on the media, whatever, when it first occurred, I think when national security law was first imposed, it was in the in the middle of a, a Black Lives Matters movement in the United States. That's right. Okay, so there wasn't much international attention to it. Uh, to to Hong Kong crackdown, by the way. Thank you. Maybe if I can ask one, just a, as a response, not not a. When could happen in Hong Kong, which is what happens in Beijing, and what's happening in Beijing at the moment with Xi Jinping's brand of And um, what is what are the prospects of Xi Jinping not realizing his dream to be leader for life? Is there prospects f for an internal check on that? I don't see any check at the moment. So. Uh, well, good question. I have been reading uh, the, this information coming out of China very closely. I, I certainly think. You know, he's aware he, he, he doesn't have the standing of Deng Xiaoping and the Chairman Mao. Although he likes to portray himself as the third leader that matters to Chinese Communist Party, right? So Mao 
down and him. And forget about the, the two guys between him and, and Deng Xiaoping. And you could see the revised party history of the, the official document, right? He has got just a few lines less than Mao. And the textbook, uh, the, 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 the document hardly refers to Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. So now the, the slogan is that Mao made China stand up. Okay? Dang made, uh, Dang made China prosperous. Xi made China strong. So that probably justifies his legitimacy, right? And I can see he is doing a lot of publicity things in preparation for his third term in the 20th Party Congress next year, including rewriting party history, by the way, okay? And there will be a third declaration in party history of 100 years, right? There will be a third declaration on so-called historical issues, right? Every time a declaration with that name is issued, usually it was justifying someone going for the long run in the leadership, right? So Mao and Tang all had that. But here's the sort of things he's been doing, you know, even having no time left to go to G20 in a, you know, Glasgow Climate Change Summit or whatever, but we're definitely not to a democracy summit in America. Uh, all this business shows he is not as strong as Tang and Mao, that's for sure. And what has he done? 10 years. I can't really think of much great things, right? Um, now, on the other hand, all indications are he has been really effectively clearing away all the potential opponents, okay? And, 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 uh, and is, is almost certain to get a third term. That's breaching the party's long-standing norm that everybody is supposed to have just 10 years, two terms. But you're talking about lifelong leadership. That I, I don't know, okay? And uh, another rumor-like saying from Beijing is that why, why Xi Jinping has been so tough on Hong Kong? Because his opponents, the Jiang Zemin slash Zheng Qinghong factions and their family business empires are all embedded in Hong Kong allegedly plotting against Xi Jinping, whatever, right? And that's sort of one explanation, okay? Um, yeah, so third term, yes, but long, a lifelong leadership. I really don't know. Thank you. Can I invite Flavia to uh, undertake our customary recognition for our speaker, please? Thank you very much, Brendan, for giving me the floor. And I would like to thank, on the behalf of the Institute, everyone who raised fantastic questions uh, for Associate Professor Jai Chen today. And on the behalf of the Institute, I would like to give to Professor Jai Chen our token of appreciation. Thank you so much. What is it? Well, we need to open. <laughs> thank you very much. Fascinating talk. Thanks.